The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. I'm now a venture at Lincoln's Inn. When I was asked if I was willing and then told that I'd been elected, you could have pushed me over with a feather because when I look at it, it's not my club. I know who I am and where I come from and that's not my club. But it does welcome me in. It does recognise the world is changing and it does actually give me the freedom to start pushing and encouraging that change. Hello, it's Kevin Poulter, and in today's podcast, we speak to Bree Stevens-Hoare, QC. Bree's a property barrister at Hardwick, a tribunal judge, and the reigning modern law barrister of the year. And between all of that, she also finds time to be a bencher at Lincoln's Inn. Aubrey is a teetotal, motorbiking, feminist, pansexual, lefty thrill-seeker, whose colourful life she wears on her wrist. She also takes us through the opaque process of becoming a QC. And this comes from somebody who doesn't sit comfortably with the many accolades that she already has. The Hearing. Brie, thank you so much for welcoming us to Hardwick. Uh, You're very, ple- very welcome. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, and this is where you've been based for quite some time now. Yeah, not physically in this building, because there was Hardwick 1, and then we moved 25 yards to Hardwick 2. <laughs> but yes. Big move. Uh, and and you are, well, the Chambers is well known for its property work and you are well known for your property work. Uh, yep, that's the centre of my practice. It's mm. the area of law I love and get quite geeky about. Um, although my practice does sort of go property and property related. So it does wander into some other areas. Yeah, well, in my research, I found this out and, and it is quite interesting. I want to talk more about it. Uh, but first of all, I want to talk about this geekiness around law generally yeah. and property law, where on earth did that come from? I don't know. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's quite fun. Well, thank because, you very much for joining us. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, because I decided I wanted to be a barrister with lots of very romantic ideas about what that meant. But where did when they I was come 13. from? Yeah, see, at 13, because I'm a But that I'm wasn't a about position. the law. What was it? It was the about Wicks. truth and oh. justice and that sort of stuff. And I think it was also about something that I was sort of already at that stage getting the signals that I shouldn't be wanting to do, that it wasn't really for me. Um, And I'm one for going to the places that aren't really for Mm. me, I'm supposed to be in. Um, So yeah, I went and studied law because I wanted to be a barrister, Mm. not because I thought I'd enjoyed the law. Okay. And then I found I did enjoy the law. But not property law at that stage. <laughs> well, before we go into that, where did these signals come from saying it's not for you? Society. I oh, mean, really? You know. So it's just something you fell rather than somebody who's yeah. waving a finger? I mean, my parents gave me the very clear signal that actually the world was out there to go and grab it by the throat mm. and make of it and make of myself whatever I felt I should do. But, you know, you couldn't grow up in the 70s and not know mm. and be in the girls' grammar school with them telling you your ambition should be to be a teacher and a nurse. Mm. Not that I'm knocking that in any way. But, you know, they told my parents that when I started announcing I wanted to be a barrister that they should tell me to do something else Mm. because I was trying to fly too high and would burn my wings. Yeah, I've had a very similar story. Uh, Well, not uh, now. uh, (laughs) Just a few years later, uh, I think. Not many. Uh, Uh, Probably a few. uh, We'll see. And that was in Reading, was it? That was in Reading. And fortunately, my parents, knowing me, told me 
that's what had been said, mm. which made me all the more determined to do it. Mm. And, and has that stayed with you all the way through? Um, the determination mm. to do the things that I'm being told I couldn't and shouldn't do. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, very I think, much. I, I, think, I think that uh, that doesn't show, but I think it gives a good reason behind how successful you've been uh, and, and some of the reasons why, which again, we'll, we'll talk about. But um, I've known you for quite some time now and I've tried to work out why I know you or how <laughs> I know you. And I think and? some of that might be related to social media, uh, possibly, Some, yeah. possibly through PJ, who's your roommate. Indeed, uh, and has been for twenty-eight years. Yeah. On the twenty-fifth of June this year. Wow! Well, congratulations. Uh, we yeah. do celebrate the anniversary. And this is PJ Kirby, who is like you, a, a property. I want to say. No, no, he's not. He's not. Oh, Sahiru. He, sorry, PJ. Um, no, he's commercial and costs mostly. Okay. Okay, so how do you and sit, some employment? How do you sit together as sort of office buddies? Seemingly Great. quite well, but he is but why? the man in my life. <laughs> um, I mean, quite literally, <laughs> he is the man in my life. He has seen me through many ups and downs. We have that wow. sort of relationship where we don't even need to say, "I haven't got time to talk today," mm. or "I fancy a chat." Um, and he's my absolute rock, and has been through most of my professional career. That's fantastic. Um, I'm jumping around a little bit now, but I'm going to take you back uh, to university. Mm-hmm. And was it a law degree? Yep, LSE. Okay. And did some of that motivation around justice and truth, uh, was that what led you to LSE or was that um, I think politics? I think it was the sort of second push that led me to LSE. So when I filled in the UCAS form, mm. actually LSE was the last one I put on the form. Um, in the sense of, oh, I need another place. I knew I didn't want to go to a collegiate-type university. Mm. I knew I didn't want, although I was going to be an 18-year-old straight out of school, Mm. I didn't want to be surrounded by 18-year-olds straight Mm. out of school, and I didn't want to live and breathe student. I wanted to be a person having a life who was studying. Mm. Um, So I sort of picked colleges on that basis, and I thought I probably wanted to be in London, Mm. And I just sort of, number five, what am I going to put down? Put down the LSE. And then did open days at all of them. And when I walked into the LSE and realised it had, even more than it does now by comparison to other places, a much higher number of mature students and foreign Mm. students, I just knew it was the place I needed to be. And then when I saw posters on the wall that said, which we then got to see every year, the Messiah returns with Tony Benn's image on it. It's like, <laughs> yes, I belong here. <laughs> and and, and that's, that, that seems again to be one of the things that in, in some ways has um, defined you and, and your career, so your politics, your uh, passion for justice again, but also supporting those people around you. And property law might not therefore be the most obvious uh, sort of area to, to specialise in. So where did that idea... That, that come um, from? Yeah, I think I'm probably a little bit unusual in that sense because many people who have been brought to the law by their sense of justice, this may be unfair to other people, but whose driver is about their own experiences or their own observation mm. of injustice in various contexts many of those end up practicing in an area that's very directly related to that, which is not for me on one level, Mm. but on another level, 
I suppose as a teenager, my politics, and I don't mean party politics by that, but my political act, we'll call it my activism. Yeah. My activism was around um, gender equality mm. and society not being open to women and success and all of that stuff. Mm. And I was very, very political in my teenage years in Reading. Um, and surrounded by very politically minded women, some of whom thought when I started talking about being a barrister, um, you know, you're a traitor, that's a traitor to the cause, you'll become part of the establishment, and some of whom thought, yes, get in there and change it. Um, So that was sort of very much where I came came at it from, Mm. was sort of, come the day of the revolution, I'm there, but in the meantime... I'll try and do something that interests me and I want to do and is fulfilling all the other aspirations, Mm. but also that is a part of changing some of those establishment things that feel like the club of a very small group of people. Yeah. And going back to why you end up with property, uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, did that allow you to have, in some way, extra time or other time, to develop your personal interests alongside a separate professional interest? I think that's been the effect, mm, but, not but the it intention. wasn't the why. <laughs> okay. Um, so when I came to the bar, in my head, from age 13 all the way into pupillage, mm. I was going to be a criminal practitioner. And I arrived at the bar, and I think there were two things that happened then that started to shift my view. And I have to say, I hated property law at university. <laughs> But I was in a general common law set, as most sets were the, the in those days, and you don't see very often these days. And so I was doing everything, but undoubtedly, as I was the female pupil, mm. picking up all the family work, doing crime and some civil work. And I, looking around me, the women at the bar, so this is 1986, mm. the women at the bar, predominantly the ones you saw day to day, were doing family work and criminal work. And if you looked into a courtroom and saw two women against each other, you knew it was either a a criminal sex case or a family Mm. children case, probably public law. It wasn't going to be the high value money and it wasn't going to be fraud. And so I had a lot of discomfort about what I was being expected to do. But I still thought I wanted to do crime and then I didn't get taken on in the first 12 months and I went and did a um, six months, third six months in a criminal set and within four weeks of being there I thought this isn't me. Mm. I don't want to live this lifestyle, Mm. the sort of hanging around till the end of the day to then be told here you are tomorrow, go to court, it doesn't get effective, you kick around all day. I want something to do all day I enjo- and I'd enjoyed the paperwork and the more academic work. So I wanted that mix and I just realised that it wouldn't sustain my interest and when I reflected back on all the things I had done, I realised the cases I'd really, really enjoyed working on, bizarrely, were the property cases. But that also meant it by then thinking, well, actually, that's what I want to do. That's what I enjoy. That's Mm. what I find engaging and interesting intellectually. And it's an area where it's better paid and women aren't expected to be in significant Mm. numbers. Yeah, I think that's true. And and I think you're right. You mentioned it already that um, 
balance between the academic but also the court time and, and I think you've you you've had that from an early early time yeah is that and, and to me that's really important to have and it's the advice I always give to people thinking about what area they want to practice in that that's one of the things to think about there's mm. a huge range of skills and ways that barristers work and thinking about what balance of those you want mm. you know some barristers don't very often see the inside of a courtroom yeah some are there every day others like me <laughs> do a mix and for me that that suits i love the advocacy but i also miss doing paperwork and getting my head into mm. the books if mm. i'm not doing that mm. enough of the time and on the back of that did you see a lot of people had have you subsequently seen or at the time seen a lot of people like you doing that sort of work because uh, you mentioned that's one of the reasons why you went into it there were many people many women doing it certainly at the time has that changed over the last 20 30 years yes yeah it has changed it has improved chancery commercial work mm. is still not the area where you see the majority of the women at the bar still if it, and you know it doesn't go only for women it also goes for bme etc etc yeah. um you know those groups who are not the default group mm. that get pushed into the lower value less well paid work mm. it happens throughout society but Lo and behold, of course, it happens in the bar as well. Yeah, and, and I think there's a distinction to be drawn, and, and you can tell me what this distinction is, because I'm not sure I know, between the old school bar, which is the stereotypes and, and, and things that people perhaps see on the TV and expect, through to what's generally called as the modern bar, and I think it, for which you are... Uh, sort of cover girl if you like um oh, i've never seen myself <laughs> as a cover girl that's well we can worrying. work it out uh, that's on the way and and uh, but 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 you very much are representative of that modern bar you are uh not the stereotype you're you're not the person that fits the mold you've used a lot of cliches now mm. but breaking the mold and and in, in terms of uh, your personality in terms of your rights to some extent the more liberal politics but also in terms of pushing for gender change, uh, changing the profession within, and LGBT aspects as well. Do you feel that change? Do you feel that you've been part of that change? Do you feel that there's further change due or imminent? How many of those questions Sorry, do you want me to Sorry, just go with all of them. Uh, <laughs> just talk. Whichever one you, you, whichever one you choose. Um, uh, I started in this direction as a teenager with lots of very big ideas about truth and justice and then about... Uh, sort of breaking down the establishment or changing, not breaking it down, opening it up. And the establishment in this situation being the profession or society? What's more establishment than the legal profession? Yeah. With, as I heard Brenda Hale talk about the quadrangle boys, you know, who've gone to schools with them, universities with them, and lo and behold, they're in the Inns of Court with them. Mm. Yeah, I only met them at the Inns of Court stage. so, yeah, I came in with that. I think I then, perhaps inevitably, hunkered down for the early years of my career. And actually, it was about surviving and staying me and true to me mm. whilst building that and working out how to negotiate this profession I'd arrived in. Mm. Um, then the sort of privilege of increasing seniority, recognition, security in my own practice has allowed me to be 
louder and louder and louder mm. about you can be here and be whoever you are. Mm. Look, I'm managing to do that. So in that sense, I think I've been an agent for change mm. by being. And that was a bit of a shock to me. The first time someone said to me, you have no choice about this. You are a role model. The only question is what sort of role model you want to be. And then I sort of realised, actually, I need to be a more visible and louder one. So embrace it rather than fight it. Yeah. yeah. Well, not that I was fighting it, but I was, for a period, I think, very focused on keeping myself safe and keeping myself mm. true to me and doing the profession I, I loved, mm. doing my work and providing what I provide for my clients in the way that I think it should be done with the whole of me doing that, the authentic me doing that. Um, so that then I became louder and louder about it and then I became more able because of my seniority mm. um, to start pushing and pushing. So internally within Hardwick, I've been very lucky to have become probably at a relatively junior stage an influential person within this organisation, but also because I was supported by people who were absolutely on board with, you don't all have to come out of one mould, etc, etc. Um, and that's been a, enabled me to have a safe place and a safe base from which to push wider into the profession. And does that answer some of those questions? No, it absolutely <laughs> does. It absolutely does. And it leads me on to another one, which is at what stage did you feel like you were comfortable to do that because you were you you took silk in I think 2013 was that the release was that the time we thought actually I've achieved I've achieved it now I've, I've done everything come at me um you can't take me down or was it before then and and <laughs> or, or general builder um no it's actually since then really yeah there's been a lot of faking it till you make it <laughs> a lot of that wow um, that surprises me so I think probably the moment, and some of this stuff makes me quite emotional. If you're going to really talk to me about taking silk and working up to that, that will make me emotional. Um, but I think the moment at which I thought, actually, you know what? You just have to go for it because you're here now, was when I got the Chambers and Partners Real Estate Silk of the Year Award, which was only 2017. Yeah. Um. I don't know why, but that evening, well, I do know why, that evening really, for me, crystallised internally that all imposter bit, which mm. hasn't gone, mm. but there was something about all of that coming together that enabled me to say to the imposter bit of me, mm. you can't deny it now. You just have to face, you're here, you're smack bang in the middle of it, and you're still you. So crack on. I think that's really surprising. That, oh, it surprised me. And I think it probably will be in some ways liberating to other people to hear this from somebody who's so senior in the profession, who's been doing the job for so long that you, you were still feeling it at that stage and sometimes maybe still do. Uh, I think that's remarkable. And, yeah, and it's I mean, surprising. if you think about it, I can sit here in Hardwick with how mm. it looks and it's my home base yeah. and it's safe. But, you know, I'm now a bencher at Lincoln's Inn. When when I was told, when I was asked if I was willing and then told that I'd been elected, I mean, 
you could have pushed me over with a feather. Mm. It's gobsmacking. I don't understand how that happens. Because when I look at it, when I stand there, when I go into council, when I stand in the hall and look at the... It's not my club. Mm. I know who I am mm. and where I come from, and that's not my club. But it does welcome me in. Mm. It does recognise the world is changing. And it does actually give me the freedom to start pushing and encouraging that change and, and has consciously put me on committees and things that enable me to start doing that. Mm. And, when you and talk, I find that extraordinary. Yeah, and, and, and fantastic. Uh, but when you talk about it being the club, I get the sense that you're talking about it as being what it looks like about the, sort of the, if you like, the touch and feel of what the building is rather than the people within it. And Some of the people within it. It's its history. It's the touch, the feel, the culture, mm. the history, mm. and the very strong sense of who the default and the bases, and who are the whatever word you want to use, the outsiders mm. that have been, mm. you know. And I'm I'm saying this because it's important people understand the stories are good. The change is happening. Mm. It's not always easy and it's not always linear and smooth, mm. but you get welcomed in. There mm. is a recognition, actually, this does need to change in some way. Mm. And of course, there'll be different views about how and how fast, but there is an engagement with it. So what are you doing now? <laughs> Sorry, it's a lovely <laughs> question. What are you personally doing to change this? Because it's, it, it's you, know, you say it's such a big job and... The, the the bar the law society silex are actively engaged in bringing about that change mm. yes yeah, sometimes it takes a long time it's a big ship to turn around but on a piecemeal smaller micro mm. uh, scale what what is being done what what can you do um what can you do <laughs> on some days you feel like you can't do anything mm. um on other days it feels like you can just take it on and change the world but in reality, what am I doing? Getting myself into positions where I can be part of making decisions about how things happen, where I can be having the conversations, even if I'm not part of making the decisions, mm. have the conversations with people who are, you know, from the small things of walking around with my lanyard, which is my entrance to the building that says diversity and inclusion on it and having people peer at me and sort of say, what's that? And starting a conversation. Mm to, you know, standing in Old Hall and talking to students about inclusion at the bar, about sexual harassment, about all the stuff that needs to be addressed and dealt with, to going and talking to the BSB about whether the rules are doing the job or not, mm. to, you know, every opportunity to actually have those conversations. Mm. So reference back things you were saying before, that is not part of my practice. No. But I think it's important that it's not only the people who practice in those areas mm. who are saying this needs to change. And actually those people are doing an amazing job to change the lives of the people they're working for and working to change the institutions they're engaged with. So perhaps it's down to me who's not putting all that energy into that wider to sort of think about, well, the home base, the mm. yeah. profession and how we change that. So. Obviously, what you've done is to come in and to stay true to yourself and to be Brie uh, and not conform. Mm. Oh, 
unnecessarily to to the stereotypes to what, what's happening around you and in that sense you, you are personally living a living representative of what it now looks like to be a barrister and uh, I've got a long list here of things that you are and I think um, most of these are true correct me if I'm wrong <laughs> okay motorbiking yep Triumph Bonneville T100 thank you uh, feminist yes absolutely unapologetically liberal mm, probably mm, further left I've got than with that a, I've got with a little L if that <laughs> all counts, right with a little okay, L yeah but further left than that okay uh, gay yep I've got three. I, specifically, oh, I would identify oh. that. That's a whole other one, isn't it? <laughs> well, let's, okay, you go, let's go down that. that, that, that <laughs> well, hole. if you want to, let's do it. Specifically, I would say I'm pansexual, having learnt from younger generations within the LGBT community much better language than my generation has. So, some people might not know what that means. Thanks. So, help us out. I fall in love with people. I am attracted physically to people and mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what their gender is whether that's cis male cis female trans non-binary actually to be honest non-binary androgynous really is probably where generally my attraction mm. my eye falls um but yeah so that it's about the people it's not about yeah. their gender and and uh, I'm going to go on because I've got some more here yep uh, I've got thrill seeker yes and and, and bungee jumper you, Bungee jumper, roller coaster, uh, yes, um, I love roller go on, coaster. tell us more. Um, I'm adrenaline junkie, which yeah. I suspect barristers are, and I'm getting to an age where I'm starting to understand the sort of some of the health consequences <laughs> of that particular hormone imbalance. But anyway, um, yeah. And I've got a teetotal. Yeah. Now, the bar not known for oh, that was necessarily one sobriety. of the. Yeah, when I when I arrived at the bar, the visible thing was I was female, and fairly quickly the sort of accent and the way I would talk would give me away as not being in any way <laughs> anywhere near private education. Um, but yeah, one of the next things that most stood out was being teetotal. And how's that been? Has it been? Some, have you? been quizzed on it uh, oh endlessly endlessly. really i mean in pupillage i used to hang around with a group of friends fabulous fabulous friends um you know we all got each other through that trauma that is pupillage but i was an honorary member of what they called themselves the drinking club because i was female and because i didn't drink (laughs) Actually, I was quite useful for pushing them into cabs at the end. I was going to say, is that, for a moment, I, I was, I was worried you were touching on tokenism, but uh, no, there's, <laughs> no, there's actually yeah. a practical reason. There was a practical reason. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, and 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 the hilarious thing is that when you, if you're teetotal, my experience, I haven't actually asked anyone else, and there are some others in the building, so I should ask them. But my experience was when you get to your mid thirties and you're teetotal, suddenly you realise that now people think you're a recovering alcoholic. They don't when you're uh, in your 20s. Yeah. But there comes an age where you can suddenly see that look in people's eye, and that's what they think is going on. Mm. So having been through all of that, at what stage does the either the urge or the maybe push from behind uh, to consider taking silk to going to be Brie QC? <laughs> As per Twitter handle. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Um, it was definitely a push from behind, a very heavy slash shove 
<laughs> Do you think you needed um, that? Oh, yeah. I would not have ever applied for it without that. And do you think that's because, well, we hear a lot, of, there's a lot in the news at the moment uh, in the profession and outside about women, again, the imposter syndrome, they won't put themselves forward unless they know that they're overqualified, whereas men are just left yeah. out of centre go for it. Is that part of it or is that just too simple? That, yeah, that's too simple. Too simple so that, that undoubtedly is an element. I'm not interested in the status for myself. I'm not interested in the accolades for myself but then when you get there like the award mm. um, it does sort of wake you up and make a difference to you and for me the added thing with the silk thing was going right back to those mm. feminists when I was 13 mm. 14 in my head I thought as I learnt more about the profession and started to move towards it, well, it's all right. I won't ever become part of the establishment because I'll never take silk. <laughs> and so I'd sort of internally, that teenager, that teenager and woman of sort of, well, not even seeing herself as a woman, a, a girl mm. in her early 20s, stepping into this completely alien world, mm. thought I'll be safe as long as I don't do that thing. As long as I don't take silk, I'll know I'm still me and I haven't become part of this thing that I want to change rather than be assimilated into. Um, so it became a bizarre, big emotional block for me that I wasn't going to go there. Mm. And it's not in my nature to look for accolades or status. Um, so for me, it was absolutely pushed by people in chambers and some other people outside of chambers sort of saying, you should, you should, you should, for a whole variety of reasons. A very smart former senior clerk who sidled up to Paula, <laughs> my partner, and sort of got her on board oh, with really? the campaign. <laughs> um, From every angle. My chief executive presenting me with a pair of the shoes you have to wear and saying, you are going to wear these, so wow. crack on with it. Okay. Um, but actually, my former head of chambers was the one who was smartest because he just said to me, Brie, there are so many things you're passionate about changing and you will be far more effective if you've got those silly letters after your name. Hmm. And, and he was right. And, and it has made that difference. It's made a huge difference in terms of the impact I can have. And... Uh, just for people like me who don't understand or necessarily know too much about it, what is the process? Because you do have to put yourself forward. Um, you no, do have to put yourself forward. Is there an element the process of, has changed slightly in the detail, and I haven't read what it is this year, but in general speaking. terms, yeah, you have to make an application. You have to pay quite a bit of money to make an application. So who does that go to? It goes to the QC Applications Commission. Okay. I should know the name, shouldn't I? But anyway, it's, it's a particular so. body. Um, and your application, it's all um, competency-based, as are judicial appointments these days. Um, so there's a competency framework. You have to, by reference to your cases, evidence, you demonstrating those competencies in defined numbers of words. Okay. So it has to be lots of I did 
and you have to evidence you demonstrating them to an excellent standard. So it's lots of, I did this excellent thing, very specific Mm. what you've done. Um, And you have to have on board from those cases, (laughs) judges, other members of the bar and clients, solicitors, who will also be prepared to sit down and take the time Mm. to write evidence-based assessments demonstrating what you did that is excellent in those competencies. So you have to do that as a written package. Mm. Um, When PJ and I did it, we took it in the same year. How romantic is that? Um, But when we did it, I think the form was something like 80 pages long and it was known in this building as the FF. I'll let you work that one out. Um, which was my fault. I kept walking around muttering about it. Um, and that goes in, they take up the references, and then you may have, if you get to the next stage, there's an interview. And then if you get it, you pay another great wedge of money in order to actually be made silk. And then you've got to buy the costume, but you've already got the shoes. Well, I've got the shoes, yeah. Um, then you buy or hire the costume. You actually have to hire quite a bit of the costume because they won't make it at Eden Ravenscroft quite quickly enough for everybody for Silk's Day. Wow. And then you go and parade in front of the Lord Chancellor um, or Minister of Justice as mm. now, and get given a red leather envelope that has in it a piece of brown paper. Parchment. It looks like parchment. It's <laughs> yeah. not parchment these days. <laughs> But, you know, all in nice script mm. that says stuff about, you know, you're, you've committed to service, service the Queen. I don't mean that. <laughs> well, exclusive. To provide a service, legal service to the Queen. Um, but it goes in seniority. Oh. And the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing about my Silks Day was I'm sat there in Westminster Hall, PJ's further along, mm. And I am sat right by Caroline Harrison, QC. Ah. It's the first time we met. She's next most senior to me. So she's on my letters pattern. Um, and we sat there and we just had such a laugh. <laughs> we had such a laugh. Outing ourselves to each other immediately. Yeah. And away we went. Wow. <laughs> and she made that day amazing for me. So I, I won't ask you if it's value for money because um, I think you're proof that it, it is and, and, and everything you've gone on to achieve since. And I've got one, a couple of questions to really about, because you're also a tribunal judge. Yes. And sit, I think, on the Judicial Appointments Committee. Uh, commission, yeah. Commission, I'm, I'm one of the two professional commissions. Yeah. So you've come in and, if I can use the, the cliche, you've broken the mould at the bar. Uh, you've done the same again as a QC. Did you have the same sort of challenges with the judiciary? No, interestingly enough. Maybe it was because it was tribunal okay. in my head. Mm. In Yeah, these daft things we create for ourselves mm. in terms of... I do think lots of barriers we have. For all I talk about the external barriers, there are also a lot of internal barriers people have. Um, but yeah, tribunal... I didn't think... And then, that I would want to sit full time, but I did have a strong sense of a public duty and of, I mean, this was a long time before I took silk, but that having got to being a successful property practitioner, I ought to be willing to take that role mm. or to take a role 
and that went perfectly within my comfort zone. Um, so yeah, I didn't have the same struggle with that. And do you think for each of these things, do you take on, do you take on a, assume a different persona in any way? Do you, d- does it kind of sit with you comfortably or are you always Brie? Um, I would say I'm always Brie. The reality is we're all made up of lots of constituent parts <laughs> and the um, figure and vividness of any particular part may shift in different situations. So of course, I'm not going to behave when I'm sitting in the way I'll behave when I'm talking to you. No. <laughs> but... And again, when the microphone's on I take... Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, but I take into that role who I am, my experience of life, my approach to life, my... the way I value human beings, etc., etc., etc. But yes, I have to behave a bit more formally. And I'm going to start wrapping up, but one of the, the, big, the big changes that you've made already is around, say, I've said before, LGBT issues mm. at the bar, across the profession generally. And you've been involved with Freehold for yep. quite a long time now. Seven I didn't realise it has been around for quite so long. Tell yep. us a little bit Seven about Freehold years. and how you get involved. Um, so Freehold is an LGBT property professionals network. So it's an interprofessional network um, that was set up when two guys, Solicitor and um, Surveyor, ran into each other um, in Clapham High Street, both dropped their partner's hands at the same time and then realised that's exactly what happened. They'd known each other for years professionally, had not known each other was gay um, and had, on seeing each other, wanted to hide the fact and then realised how ridiculous that was. So they set up the network. I went, I think, to the second event um, and just realised, I think, in a way I hadn't appreciated before, that even though I've been out since my first relationship with a woman, which was with a fellow member of Chambers, um, that still you have to do that sort of... 30 second and and it's not conscious it's unconscious you meet a new person there's that 30 second am i editing and it wasn't until i went to a freehold event and then a second one and then i was going to the third one and paula said to me in the morning what time will you be home and i said oh i've got a bd thing tonight she said what is it i said it's freehold she said oh a late one then and then i realized normally i could take an hour to an hour and a half mm. freehold i'm there all night Really? And I thought, why is that? It's because I'm completely relaxed. Because I don't, for one second, mm. even 30, you know, half a second, whatever, I don't have to stop and think, am I editing? Um, and that was a surprise to me. It was only through experiencing the contrast, mm. I realised that even in my very privileged, fabulous London bubble, it was having an impact. Mm. So anyway... No, but Freehold's cracked on. Freehold has pushed and pushed at the various professional organisations, lots of the property companies, agents, etc., etc., and been a big agent for change in the property industry. Um, and last year we got the Estates Gazette Achievement Award, which was fantastic. Mm. So I'm really proud of that. Um, and then trying to do a similar-ish thing with Free Bar, which is about changing the culture at the bar. Mm. And a lot of that is about making the good stories more visible. Mm. Because quite often with LGBT, there's good stuff going on, 
But if you're not in the middle of it, you don't know that and you don't see that, which is not very helpful to clients or to those who want to enter the profession yeah. or work with the profession. So trying to shift that. And when we talk about visibility, one of the things that is always visible when I see you is your combination of glasses, shoes and watch. Uh, and I'll, I'll stop there. Um, <laughs> so where did that come from? Because you've got some good stories around this as well, which again may or may not be could, suitable. But yeah, we could go there. I think you'll forgive me. Um, the colour is about not liking the wear, having to wear... I mean, when I came to the bar, the Code of Conduct said that women had to wear dresses or skirt suits and it had to be black or grey or navy blue. And I was not happy about that, <laughs> particularly the trouser business. Um, it's fair to say that I haven't worn trousers since the day that the then Lord Chief said we didn't have to anymore. Skirts. Oh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> I haven't worn skirts. I have only worn trousers <laughs> since then. Um, but yeah, the colour is my way of sort of doing the black, grey and navy blue, but still being me. Hmm. And uh, I guess I'm going to push you because it's On a great the story. Tell me about your collection of watches. Well, my watches are all the same brand. And Do I'm, you mind me saying a brand? And, and universally admired. <laughs> they are for uh, their colour. Tell us. People normally admire them for the colour. But when I get into conversation about them, I show people the watch brand name. And you're thinking of the story I told you about... So this was David Newberger. That's right. That's right. This was a, a chat that I saw you with with Felicity Jerry QC, yes. uh, another sort of barnstormer at the bar. Yeah. And uh, it was it was a good story. So I'm going to ask yeah. you to share it again. Well, we know Lord Newberger is a good guy, um, and has been very vocal and supportive on diversity issues, and he includes LGBT in that. And because I do property work, I had come across him. In, various um, contexts and I ended up at the Property Litigators Association having sat beside him at dinner the night before in the morning the next day he's the keynote speaker I'm on after him and we're looking around and he's listening Bree there's no clock in here how am I going to know when I've got to shut up or words to that effect and I said to him well I can either you know give you a tea sign or I can sort of do the throat cut sign or I'll lend you my watch, provided you don't look at the brand name, knowing that his response would be a glint in the eye and a laugh, and a, well, of course I won't look. Whereupon he took my watch and looked at it and roared with laughter, because the brand name is Muff Diver. <laughs> and the best bit was, and it's one of those moments of sort of affirmation that actually I am accepted here. You've got Lord Newberger gets off the stage, having used my watch to time himself, and quietly says to me as I step onto the stage, Brie, let me give you back your muff. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for your time and sharing this amazing story. And uh, yes, you know you're a role model. Keep doing it. Uh, uh, keep, keep pushing yourself and, and uh, willingly being pushed by other people as well, hopefully. Uh, onwards and upwards. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Hearing. As ever, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us again and why not give us a rating or subscribe? That way you'll get an alert every time we release a new episode. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters.
To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.